because brokers, they want to make the market and they want the deal to close. I don't want, the, the more time I waste with people that aren't interested, the worse it is for me. If you say, I want storage and they brought you 10 storage deals, but none of them were the type of deal you wanted and you said, no, they're, they're going to stop bringing They're never going to bring you deals again. Hey, everybody. Connor and I work really hard to try to bring the best podcast in cell storage that we can. We ask a lot of guests, we do a lot of research, and a lot of work goes into it. If you could help us out by leaving a review, it's so easy. You just go down on whatever device, Spotify, Apple, whatever you're using, leave a great review. It really helps us out. Thanks, everybody. Looking to create wealth and income through high cash flowing real estate? Self storage is the fastest growing and the newest real estate asset that has outperformed all others. What's its secret? I'm AJ Osborne, and with over a million square feet that we have built, acquired, expanded, and even converted big box stores from small third tier markets to large hundred plus thousand square foot facilities, we have seen it all. This is the podcast that we're going to discuss and bring on the best investors and operators in the nation to show you how to create wealth and income with self-storage. Welcome to Self-Storage Income. Welcome back, everybody, to the Self-Storage Income Podcast. We're so excited to dive into today's episode. However, we've got some amazing sponsors that we have to shout out before we get started here, and that is Live Oak Bank. Tenant Inc., Forge Building Company, and Janus International. It doesn't matter what part of the cycle that we're in, guys. Development is always going to be an amazing opportunity for you guys. And look no further than Forge Building Company to be your building partner at your development project. Forge is one of the leading self-storage contractors in the country. They're building nationwide. And it, just in the last 15 years, these guys have built over 60 million square feet in storage, which is totally insane. That's a ton of storage, guys. They know self-storage. They can value engineer like nobody's business and save you tons of money. Be sure to check out Forge Building Company. Connor, I am really excited about today's guest. This is going to be a fun one. It's going to be super fun. Um, I'm actually, so our guest today is Tiffany Boss, and I've followed Tiffany uh, for a little bit on social media and just kind of seeing all the things she's doing up and coming in the storage world. And uh, it's been really exciting. We were kind of talking to her before the podcast here and uh, she kind of started off doing the passive route and then uh, started with partners and then closed, you know, not too long ago in her own facilities and has a lot of really cool things going on. So excited to dive into it, see how she got started, you know, go from start to finish and kind of where she's at today and, and what the future looks like. So Tiffany, thanks so much for coming on. Thank you, guys. I'm honored to be on here. This is definitely a, a huge honor for me. Well, we appreciate you coming on. We, um, you know, we're always looking to have discussions with it, it's interesting when I think about who we want to talk to on the podcast. Right. Because, yeah, you can talk to people that have value. But what I found was and you've probably felt the same way, it, like value is relative. So. I could have somebody that could come on and deliver like outrageous amounts of value on like non-recourse loans, but to a segment of the population, that might be zero value at all because it they can't use it. It doesn't matter. It doesn't anything else. So when we're thinking about the audience, right, we're really thinking about value and who we should bring on. And I actually think that the most value we ever bring on is people that have gone through, they've been doing it and have an experience like yours from passive to doing group investing, to doing one on your own, 
um, that tends to, I believe, be the most value that we can have. So we really do appreciate you coming on. You've had quite the journey. Um, where are you out of? Uh, so I'm in Colorado Springs. Right on. Awesome. Yep. Awesome. And you walk us through how you even got interested in self-storage. I'm really always interested <laughs> to hear about that. People are like, so how'd you get interested in self-storage? I agree. So I actually was originally, I've always been drawn to real estate. And for years and years, when you're um, like these poor college students, it's not even in your mind, you say, we have all this debt to pay off. Well, had I known then, well, you can use other people's money. I wish I knew that 10 years ago, you know? Um, anyway, so fast forward, you finally get a little bit out of debt and you start thinking, oh, we can finally start looking into real estate. And and my my father said, don't do single family. Don't do rentals. I'm like, okay, I'll do multifamily. Let's do that. <laughs> and uh, I actually was listening to the Bigger Podcasts podcast. I So I read all the books. I um, started looking at multifamily deals and I heard you on the Bigger Pockets podcast yeah. talking about storage. And this was a couple years ago. And I was like, I never even thought or realized that's a thing. Like I could own that. I mean, and, and the thing that did it for me among a few things, but the very statistic that you shared about at the time, this is rapidly changing. Well, your multifamily is 80% institutionalized and 20% mom and pop storage is the exact opposite. It was like a light bulb hit me and it was said, duh, don't you want to compete with those mom and pops, the 80% versus the 80% of the REITs, you know, and yes. um, I came home, I kind of brushed the idea to my husband, wondering like, what's he going to think? Like, and he looks at me and says, that is the best idea you've ever had. <laughs> I'm like, <laughs> oh my gosh, we're good then. We can go for it. <laughs> um, and so, so for there, it was like, okay, ditch multifamily, read all the storage books, you know, so I'm getting into it. And trying to find out how am I going to make this happen? I listened to, of course, all the podcasts and especially a lot of yours. There was so much useful information that you had given me in your book and your podcast. Um, and, you know, this was all towards COVID. Like I'm sitting there with kids are outside all day, every day, because we can't go anywhere. And I get one page at a time because the kids are like interrupting every five minutes. And finally, my husband's like, you could read all the books in the world, you could listen to all the podcasts in the world, but until you actually, because I was using the excuse of, I have to know everything before I can do this. I have to uh -huh. know it all. And, yeah. and I have that mentality of like, no, you got to know it because you can't fail. Because if you, if you fail, then your fault is, well, I should have done my homework better. This is like a test, right? You don't do the right homework, then you're going to fail the test. And so He's like, but I could buy a facility and within a month, no more than you'll ever know by reading all these books. And again, another light bulb. I was like, you are so right. And, and it, I knew it was what I wanted, but I just couldn't take the next step to go after it. And once he said I was postponing, like sending out letters and making my lists and just telling myself, I need to keep learning more and more and more. And while what I learned was advantageous and definitely helped me he was so right. So I, um, I immediately started getting my letters together, sending them out and, um, contacting just 
some of the greatest resources and mentors, just reaching out to people and kind of um, getting to know the brokers. Although in the beginning, it's funny because you you reach out to the broker and, okay, I'll put you on my list. I got a couple thousand people on there. I'm like, oh, I feel like a diamond in the rough, you know, which uh, it's yeah. tough to to get in there because now, well, who am I? I'm, I'm this like nobody. They don't know me that I don't have anything in storage. I've never been in storage. And so I'm not a priority for them, which pushes me to say, Hey, I'm going to make myself a priority for you. I'm going to, it helps me, um, get going anyway. So that was, that's kind of the long version of getting into storage. There's no two ways about it. The self-storage industry is one of the most incredible industries to be a part of. Real estate investment or otherwise, it's such an amazing community to, to be a part of and to enjoy. One of the big, huge things that self-storage has been absolutely lacking, though, is technology. And that's where Tenant Inc. comes in. Tenant Inc. is your one-stop shop solution for all things property management. They have a plethora of amazing tools at your fingertips that you can use to optimize your facility, to run it as smoothly and efficiently as possible, to maximize revenues, and to really drive value of your storage facility. Be sure to check out Tenant Inc. Link is in the show notes. How, how did you, like, now you've just, you piqued my interest on so many things. How did you, when you said, I'm going to make myself a priority, first of all, I just love that, right? Um, that's the absolute right attitude to do. What, what did you do? Like, what did you, did you call them and say, bug the tar out of them? Like, how did you separate yourself out from that? Because you, you hit it on the head. Oh, I'll put you on my list. Okay. You're one of thousands of people. And yeah. don't ever remember you. They're never going to think like, how did you break out? Uh, I'm not hundred percent convinced that I have fully broken out. Um, you know, I don't have brokers uh, bringing me deals. Although I did, I had one email ahead of time um, say, Hey, this is about to hit the market. And I was like, what, why am I seeing this beforehand? You know, it was a pretty big deal. It was out in Utah and um quite a bit bigger than I wanted to take on at the time, but I just thought, Hey, that I think just emailing, calling, letting them know what I wanted and, um, where I was looking. And I probably would say if I called a certain broker in my area, um, who's well-known and said who I was, she wouldn't be able to tell me, Oh yeah, you wanted this amount of square feet, you know, but maybe she'd read through her emails and say, Oh, this girl's been, been bugging me a little bit. And, and now they'll respond when, when I ask, Oh, what did this one sell for? Cause I'm kind of curious after the fact, after the deals that I've seen come on the market, I want to see what things are selling for and they'll respond. And so it's nice. I don't, I don't think I've fully broken out of that one in a thousands of people, but, um, the big oh. thing for me also wasn't to focus on the brokers really, but more my mentors who, um, I, I've been shocked at the people who've been willing to give me the time. Some people are like ornery and they don't want to that you get hung up on and that's a little discouraging. Um, but you find those few that are willing to give you some time and a lot of useful knowledge and help. And I'm still texting them to this day. Hey, what do you do here? What about this? And getting a lot of great advice. So, so I don't know, to be honest, if I answered your question or not, but I think you really actually did. I love So there's a few things that I think when you pointed out, you, you mentioned, here's what I want. Here's where I'm at. 
Here's where I'm looking for. Like a lot of people view brokers, like brokers are there just to, they say, uh, if you have a good deal, give it to me. Brokers don't know what a good deal is to you or anybody else, right? But you have to really identify that buy box. And this is my buy box. And then when they're out doing deals or deals pass by, you know, once you've repeated it enough, they say, oh, hey, nope, I have a seller because brokers are market makers, right? I'm putting sellers and buyers together. You have to make it easy for them to make that line from the buyer or from the seller to you. And it has to bypass all of those. So the more specific you are, the more they're like, oh, yep, that fits this quality because I remember somebody telling me exactly this. And I think that's a big, big part of it is you're saying, here's my buy box. Here's what I want. Here's where I want it. When it comes across your desk, I'm a buyer because brokers, they want to make the market and they want the deal to close. I don't want the, the more time I waste with people that aren't interested, the worse it is for me. So when you're really specific and they know you're a buyer, then they have that product. They're just going to, they, they want it to close. They want it to be done so they can move on to the next deal. That's how they make money, right? They don't make money by even necessarily the biggest one. It's by doing lots of them. Right. And so they got to actually close deals, make it, and they're trying to lower their work. So I think that's a big thing that um, you hit on. And that's perfect way you should be working with brokers, discussing emails, calling them. Here's my buy box. Here's my buy box. Here's my buy box. And then they remember it and then they make a market for you. Um, and that's, I think, how you distinguish yourself because then you're not going to get calls when they're not deals that fit you. Um, and that's what you want, right? Because you also don't want to tell brokers no. Meaning if you say, I want storage and they brought you 10 storage deals, but none of them were the type of deal you wanted. And you said, no, they're, they're going to stop bringing, they're never going to bring you deals again. And you said, well, if you would have brought the right deal to me, I would have said, yes. Well, what is that? And I find this mistake so much with people where they're like, the broker won't send me deals anymore. They won't call me. I'm like, yeah. well, did you tell them no? Did they do it? Because if you're not going to move, right, then you are not a buyer. So they can't make a market with you. And I think that's so important. So tell us about your, you, you started passively investing, then you did a group deal. So when you did your first group deal, um, like where, it, it, how did you go about it? Was that just a group of acquaintances? It was a group of friends. And so you wanted to go make a deal. Did you find that, that, that first deal? How'd that go down? No, I, uh. Honestly, huge, uh, not luck, a lot of hard work on my mentor and partner's side. And more was part of just the capital raising. And also part of that was, okay, we're going to go in on this. And I need a lot of help getting my own, doing um, guidance on that. So uh, I, I really can't take a lot of credit for that one other than I've learned a ton out of it. So. Well, um, I, you put your foot in the door. So yeah. and, and for me, that's the key. Yeah. So that was, so one thing you had, um, you had just mentioned was, well, I was able to narrow it down. That was hard to do. Very hard. The square foot is, you know, it's like a kid in a candy store. I want that. I want that. I want that. I want that. You want, you just want it. And yes. when I finally got the first deal uh, that was on my own, I actually uh, had a higher uh, square footage requirement than what my facility currently is. And when I sent everything and I sent hundreds of letters out, I get back nothing. Three calls. One call is, 
well, how the heck did you get my number? Right. Yeah. Yeah. Two, exactly. other calls, two or three other calls. It's like, Hey, do you want to, we're a big investment firm. Do you want to be one of our clients? Right. Like they're sure they want my business or, or do you have a facility you can sell us? That's the only reason they called me back. And so I said, you know what, let me lower my search parameters a little bit here. Out of hundreds of letters, I decided to send 10 more letters, only 10. And three days later, I got the call from this deal. And I'm like, man, I don't know if that was inspired or what, but I, I didn't want to wait on it. I said, I'm coming to look at it uh, tomorrow, you know, immediately and actually got outbid. He says, oh, I got a few other people looking and I go, what, how is this possible? You know, and I was a little discouraged. And right about the time I was about to send out my other round of letters and start, okay, now I should start calling. And I was very intimidated to get on the phone because that's, that's face-to-face rejection. Yes. You know, you send a letter, they throw it in the garbage. I don't know that they threw it in the garbage, yeah. but they tell me on the phone, no, I don't think so. It, it's hard to, to yeah. keep swallowing yes. that over and over. Yes. And one thing I was sure to do was just kept in contact with this owner. And, you know, I remember sitting, I was at the Colorado, so self-storage meeting. And I just thought about him and I texted him and said, how's it going? Great. Everything's good. Said, when do you close? Oh, we close this date. And three days later, he called me and he said, Hey, I, I want to sell to you. I I, I don't know if it was because I kept in contact. He was the one that backed out of the deal sold to me. And I was just like, man, I wondered, had I never texted him back if he would have just kept on, just kind of followed, followed up till, till it closed. Cause Hey, it ain't over until it's over, you know, the reason I lowered my search parameters and some people say, well, I wouldn't do that. I just wanted the momentum that when you said you wanted your foot in the door, I always, everyone's like, get that momentum, just get that first deal because that will get you going. And it's so true. And that, even though I want bigger, I can get there. I need the momentum to get going. And that for me was, was huge. Oh, I, I tell people like, you know, you're being so picky. Let me ask you this. Why should the market pick you? Yeah. And you're like, uh, what do you mean? I'm like, why, why would the market ever pick you? to buy that deal that you want. Mm-hmm. And people don't think about it like that. It's like, they think that the market owes them something, right? <laughs> it's like the market should give me a good deal. And so they always wait and they're not going to do it unless the deal is perfect, exactly what they want. And I'm like, I didn't get that. I had deals out in the middle of nowhere that we didn't want to buy, yeah. but we took what we could get. And as time went on, we were able to get better and better deals. We were able to gain experience. So we knew what we were talking about, but most importantly, our understanding of what made a good deal actually improved. And we actually could work through it to figure out here, how do we need to execute? We gained all of a sudden a reputation or not a reputation, just a track record. We've closed on a deal. And now it put more reasons for the market to give us deals. And a lot of people don't realize when you start out, you're not going to get the best deals. I mean, you may get a great deal. I'm not saying that you won't, but the market's not serving you up deals, right? And that expectation just kills people. And it's like, you got to understand, you got to fight for your position. You got to fight for it with brokers. You got to fight for it with sellers. You got to fight for it. They don't owe you anything, right? And so saying, I'm going to do a smaller deal so I can get in the game. 
like if more people would would make that kind of decision and move, even though it's not exactly what they want, th there's so many more people would be in the game. Even today, if I took my perfect buy, I don't get that. We're always looking at deals and it, it's about what we like in it, what we don't like it and where that line is because perfect deals don't exist. And yet our experience by saying this is still good, a good deal and we can make this into a good deal is what made us. It's because we're taking what the market is giving and we're turning it into something we want it to be. And I love that you did that. You're just like, I'm going to invest passively. I'm going to invest with a group and I don't get to be a major part in, but I'm going to do whatever I can take to get in the game. And then I want this. Well, no one's giving me that, but I do have an opportunity on this. Okay. It's more work. It may not be as profitable, but I'm doing it. So you are putting yourself, you're forcing the market to notice you. You are forcing yourself to get in the game and that's what it takes. And so I just love that. And I love how you went about it in multiple stages right? Um, and that's something that'll benefit you just completely moving forward. I is... also, I love how you refine that process too, where you sent yes. out all the mailers and you realized, okay, all the responses I got were this, this, and this, that's not what I need. Yes. So let me refine that and figure out what exactly, like, let me just kind of limit the amount of, I mean, you went down to 10 letters that you're sending out and got a response again it just goes back to like identifying that criteria of who exactly you're reaching out to what you're looking for and get rid of get, getting rid of what's not, not working, working. And, just, and keep going not yeah, giving up exactly. not saying that didn't work but we're doing the same thing over and yes, over again yeah and be like oh well this is dumb this doesn't work like mailers suck like <laughs> so I just wanted to point that out. That's awesome that you did that. One of the best ways to increase value of your storage facility is to integrate tech to improve operations, right? So Janus International actually has their no-key technology. It's a keyless access entry system that allows not only the access and entry to the gate, to the building, to the unit, it allows tenants to, and potential tenants to actually come in and rent a unit online, right? They can access online, see what units are available, rent the unit, access the building, the unit, everything straight from their phone without ever having to go to the office to do any kind of paperwork, do any kind of that kind of to do any kind of paperwork or any of that, which is an incredible amount of value for so many people and that user expectation that people have in today's marketplace. Again, Janus International, their Noki system, be sure to check that out. Link is in the show notes. If you guys are looking to purchase your first storage facility, you just might be looking at the SBA loan approach and one of the best and most efficient places to get your SBA from is going to be Live Oak Bank. These people know self-storage. They've been in the industry for a very long time. They're very knowledgeable. You don't have to educate them on the underwriting, on how you're, you're valuing self-storage, any of that. These guys are incredible at valuing self-storage. They know how to underwrite it, and they are a phenomenal solution for you and your financing needs in all things self-storage. Again, Live Oak Bank. Walk us through this first deal. Um, you, you know, something else I, I, I liked about this first deal that you said, you know, um, you weren't the highest bidder, things like that. I, I don't think people realize that easily probably 60% of our deals, we are not the highest bidder. Maybe even more than that. In fact, 
on a big deal that we're doing, which is a ginormous deal, which we'll talk about later, not now, but um, we were the lowest of the final offers. And um, the final offers were not, they didn't pick us because we were big and best. We were actually the lowest as far as, as it, they were institutionals. And so, uh, yeah, so we, it wasn't that we had a size gain. It's not like these were mom and pops that I was competing. No, we, we were the lowest offer. We were the less capitalized. We were the le- smallest organization. Like there was so many reasons why we were at a disadvantage to get it. Um, and so I love that because what you said about the seller is it, it, it's literally, I'm like, I was on the phone with the seller this Friday and this was the conversation was very much similar to that. And I, you know, I had to work within my strengths to get that deal and with that seller who wanted to sell to us and, and make it work, people try to make it not a people game. Like people want it, real estate to be a, a streamlined process and they want to take the people out of it, but you can't take the people out. It doesn't work like that. Uh, so when you, you're talking with the seller, okay, um, what did you have to do as far as walk through some of the details on like the PSA? How long did you have to close? How did you raise the money and the financing? How did you get the money to do it? Um, how, what, what would you do to close that deal? So I knew the seller wanted a fast close. And, and originally when, you know, he's telling me, Hey, I've got another bidder and well, how long do they want to close? You know, I'm trying to gauge what I can offer him and, um, what he wants and then what curious, what do you want to do with the money? If he already was buying something or doing like a, a statutory trust type thing. And, and I knew he wanted to close. I wanted to close before the end of the year. This was probably, um, August when he called me, but then I was out, I was kind of outbid, like I said. And so by October, um, he, he called me back and I said, okay, 60 day closing. Really all I needed was how long does the bank need for the appraisal? Because we did finance through the bank. Um, and, once I had that timeline, which was about 40 to 45 days, um, I know, okay, that'll give me an extra two weeks just to finalize, get everything, which really at that point, it's, it's a pretty much a done deal. That's when you're starting to, to make sure the bank accounts are set up. And, um, so, uh, so essentially when he came back, the first offer was just a price for him. It was just a price and he took the higher higher price. And they started, I don't know why he backed out. I guess, um, they were just starting to demand all these things. And, and, and I straight up told him my price might be lower, but there's virtually no contingencies. I mean, this is straightforward. I don't want to make this complicated. I I think sellers don't want it to be complicated there. And at the end of the day, I think he finally, and I said, you know, they're going to get in there and start whittling away at that price because I'm stretching it to the max and I just don't see it working even past what I'm offering you. And so, so I'm just going to be straightforward with you. I'd be happy to work with you when you're, if, if anything happens and um, I didn't know what was going to happen, but in my heart, I just knew like, there's no way they can make that work with that price. And, and uh, um, sorry, I'm trying to remember all your questions. So then, well, um, you know, first that I, I got to, we, this is, I love what this, okay. First thing I got to hit on here, the, the conversation with the seller using what you 
have as your benefits to uh, this deal and offering and recognizing the disadvantages that the other people may have and keying in with a few things that are really important. Literally your conversations, the exact same thing with me and this guy that we were buying these this portfolio off of that he's like, you know, they're higher than you. And it was, and he's like, you know, AJ, I know they're going to have a 90 plus page PSA. Oh. It is going to be nonstop working with attorneys. Yep. It is going to be going through endless due diligence, running us through the ringer. Um, and then they may at the end actually come back and want prices off. Um, you know, he's like, you know, where we were like, listen, we're straightforward. We and we don't go put lots of deals under contract. If a, we put a deal under contract, we close. So when you when when we come to you, I'm going to halt the other deals. You'll be my only one. Right. And so just like what you were saying, listen, I may be the lowest, but we're going to come in. We're going to get this done. We're going to get it done fast. You hit on the things that were actually really important to him. And uh, a lot of people forget. Price isn't it. That's not it. And a lot of these sellers, especially today, are being burned by deals falling out of contract in retrades. And so their concerns of actually things closing and actually thing happening is rising. And it's a great time to be playing into that um, and competing with the big guys that may put out tons of mailers, tons of, uh, of uh, deals under contract, right, to choose their best one and see if it closes or not. And sellers are worried about that. And you really hit that hard with them and keyed in onto his true concerns. Well, and that's what I, I had the feeling. I said, you know, some of these firms, they're just going to tie up all the deals because they can back out at a certain point. They can, they have until a certain point, but they want to tie up that deal so that nobody else is going after it. And um, I was suspicious of that. And I just, I thought, man, I, I wish I had the guts to do that. But I, again, like you, I just, no, this is the one I want and I want this one and, and you're it. So let's keep it simple. Let's close in 60 days. Um, uh, I think I only thing I had to do was maybe push that 45 day when the money went hard back by five days. I just said, hey, the appraisal's taken a few days longer, but I don't have any concerns. It appraised for well above what I bought it for. Um, and so we were good to go and and we closed. Was this still close to you or was this out of state? Was it far no, away? No, it's only an hour away. Yeah, I- I, I know there was a lot of back and forth when, again, through listening to your podcasts of, well, you don't have to stay in your area. And I get that because you might not find the best deals in your area, but knowing me and can be, I can want to be a little bit controlling and make sure I've got my handle on things. Because again, what if I failed and I'm going to blame it on, oh, it's out of state and more can go wrong. I at least wanted my first deal to be close to home where I could kind of babysit it a little bit and, and yeah. learn again, what I can't learn in the books, what I can't. Um, and that's a great way to reduce risk. Most of the people yeah. starting out, the risk is in the unknowns. It's not the deal. It's not leverage. It's not the money. The risk is in what they don't know. So the, the benefit of doing something closer is there's an actual real legitimate risk being lowered. You understand the market, you understand the people, you understand things right like now although i didn't say that you know when we started out doing it, it didn't need to be in my city and i was okay with out of state it was still in my realm of 
like it was in my state it was a small town i understood all the small town dynamics right it was very it was a hundred percent within my comfort zone i would have never gone to california i would have never gone east of the mississippi i would have never gone out of the rocky mountains i would have never gone out of the northwest because i didn't understand it and there was too much risk for me so i think you know that's awesome uh i think it's important people realize though that you can buy in other states and there's things that you can do to lower risk you don't need it close but yeah if there's one close that you can that's there's an absolute 100 real reduction in risk by doing something that you can control you can see better not that you can't out of state or anything but you understand it so that's awesome that you actually had that opportunity and chance. Well, and I knew, I mean, it's in Denver. So I knew that's still a good market. It's not like I'm, because it's close, I'm, I'm sacrificing yes. a, mar a market. You know, I thought, well, it's, it's a great, everybody's moving there. You know, it's, it's still growing and um, things are just appreciating. So I knew I'd be okay. Yep. I mean, so we're uh, in the same market now because we now have two deals in Denver. So, yeah. uh huh. Yeah. yeah I, I, I had got a call from a broker and I said, Hey, said, I, two weeks after I closed, I got a call from somebody. Hey, do you want to sell? I'm like, the ink is still wet. I'm literally just. Yes. <laughs> How'd you finance it? What? How'd you finance it? Uh, through the bank. So we, um, we have a great relationship with our credit union and, um, you know, we had, to, we had to come up with a, a good down payment, but you know, we had, had kind of been saving. I had a few people that wanted to go in on it with me. And I just thought I have to do it first. The next deal, it's all yours. Like you, I wanted, I want to join in, but I can't risk failing with your money, you know, with, um, I, I guess I can with the bank's money right now. <laughs> but yeah, they because bet. that's the position they're in that's what yeah they're and they they research it they obviously do all of the their due diligence which yeah. also helped me know okay they uh they have something in this as well and because it's my first deal solo i think that's going to help with um a little bit of the risk but so then i got a a call later on and and they throw out this price i'm like there's no way I just paid this much for it. There's no way you're going to pay this much. And he goes, Oh, we just bought one around the corner for a similar, similar year, whatever. And, um, anyway, I had found out that I think that's the one you bought. And I was like, Oh, that's weird. <laughs> that's awesome. Oh, <laughs> yeah. That's amazing. We have got two in. So one's in actual Denver proper. The other one is in, um, it's called Inglewood. Inglewood. Yeah. You're probably, yeah. I think that's yeah. the one then. Cause that would be near, Oh, wait a minute. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Big next to the big development that's going on. That was the college campus yeah. right off that exit. Yeah. We're right there. Yeah. So that whole place is being revitalized. I mean, it's, yes. you know, you'll see a hotel there's cops there every day and then right next to it's like brand spanking new luxury apartments i'm like yes. huh, huh. <laughs> yeah that's it's shocking the development that they're doing and, and and what's going on in that and that's like the perfect area that you know we look for and things that we're, we're looking you're still buying mom and pops and that's been a strategy of ours that we've always maintained and so like when you talk about not sacrificing markets you you just hit on this big you have a you have a market that is 
a first tier market, but it's a first tier market that has just left second tier. And its growth happened in a way that so many of those assets are owned, were mom and pops, and the market literally grew around them. And they never even adjusted for it or whatnot. So it leaves a lot of opportunity, but it also leaves a lot of buying opportunities in markets like that. And that's like our complete strategy, right? So uh, you not only did you not sacrifice in market, uh, you had close to you and one of the better markets in the United States, arguably. Um, and so what a home run. I mean, that's absolutely amazing. Uh, now, walk me through what terms and anything were you getting? So when did you close on it? And what did the, which we use uh, credit unions a lot. So I, I completely understand on that one. What, what were your terms looking like? What did the banks want to see? So it was surprising because like the bigger banks, they wanted to go through an SBA loan. And I knew that would have been at least a 90 day, if not longer, um, closing time. It's definitely a lot less money down. So it is appealing for that reason. But um, I knew the closing time was big for the seller. And I knew if I hit him with a 90 plus day, well, that can be a deal breaker. So, um, and like I said, we had the the uh, local credit union, a great relationship with them. And so uh, as far as terms you want, you mean like interest rates and things yeah, like, like that? Yeah, what was the interest rates and how long was it locked in for? And what was your thought process with that and the credit union, you know, um, in times that are changing so fast on the financing side? So we we got it at a good time because obviously interest rates have gone up. And our uh, the only that's the other downside it is only a 10 year loan amortized over 25. So which is nice because you're not paying 10 year all that interest. Um, and I think our rates like a three two five. And then after five years, it bumps up to a three seven five or something like that. Yep. And, um, you know, it's funny because I never. Uh, you you always have this quote that it's like, I don't tell the the banks don't tell me how much I can afford. I tell the banks what I can afford or whatever, and yeah. I keep that in my mind. And um, so she banker would hit me with, "Okay, this is what we can offer you," and I'm like, "I mean, that's the best you can do." It's like I just don't take what they say for an answer. It's like you got to hit me with the best. I mean, I know I'm. I'm getting a good deal here. And, and, and she lowered it and she's like, man, you, you're good. Right. Cause we had just done another commercial deal with this credit union for a commercial office building. Um, and I did the same thing on that one, you know? So I'm like, are you, uh, are you sure that's the best you can do? Cause I had looked at a few other banks and, and they had slightly lower interest rates, but it was that longer closing time. So um, I got them down a little bit on the interest rate and I actually liked the 10 year because I just thought, Hey, that's just that much quicker. Yes. All that money I'm paying on the loan can either go in my pocket or refinance, get it all out again. You know, so there's lots of more. And a lot, lots of people aren't doing, they don't get 10 years. It's a lot less. Um, and so that's our preferred means and everything. that's our normal structure 10 year with a 20, 25 year AM. Um, and do you have prepayment penalties on that? Did the, no. the credit union views? That that's was the other thing yes. with SBA prepayment. I didn't want yeah. that, you know, with us right now still being, um, having income from, you know, like my husband, I actually, I'm like, I don't want a ton of income right now. So it is nice to be putting mm -hmm. a lot towards the loan 
and yeah. not having that as income, but it is becoming equity. And then once we say, hey, we got enough to retire, this is now our income yep. and we're not paying the loan anymore. So that was kind of the strategy is, well, I don't need a ton of passive income right now because we're still working. We're young. Yep. We enjoy working. Yes. Um, huh? And we don't you want, want your that. money to work for it more than just give you a, yep. a paycheck. Yeah. And so in the long run, that paycheck will then replace our, yes. our working exactly. income. That's my goal. I love it. And, uh, you know, that's a huge advantage because that, you know, you get rid of that prepayment penalty and that really opens you up to opportunities that opens you up, up to just so much that um, you can and do and grow. And I, I made that mistake starting out. We had, you know, prepayment penalties that we thought were reasonable and not only reasonable, we're like, well, it's predicated on interest rates going down and interest rates are never going to go down. And if interest rates go down, we'll have to pay more, but that'll never happen. Oh, that was wrong. Uh, so all of a sudden we had loans that we were essentially stuck in yeah. for a decade that we had quadrupled the value of the asset and we couldn't do anything with it. And it's like, oh, we literally have tens of millions sitting there that we can't access. And that hurts. So, um, yeah, that's a really big benefit. And a lot of people don't think that through that 10 years is a long time a really long time when you're dealing with real estate changes in the economy. Um, and I didn't think that 10 years was long at all until I saw what we could do in a matter of three or four. And it shocked me. And so you want that freedom, especially on your first deals, because that capital, getting it back to you in good structures and moving, using it to buy other properties, that's really, really important when you're starting out. You need access to that capital and that wealth that you're creating. Yeah. And that actually, uh, that was important to me. I kind of had forgotten about that, but, and maybe wouldn't have been a deal breaker, but definitely I pushed like no prepayment penalties. They waived all the origination fees and everything. Wow. So I really paid for like the appraisal and maybe 500 bucks for something else. I can't remember, but it was, they were awesome. And when we showed up to the closing, um, the seller's daughter had kind of acted as the broker, you know, as yeah. she was doing a lot of the management side of things. And she was like, who's your bank? I cannot believe the treatment they gave you. She was like shocked. She was like, they showed up my banker. I can hardly get an email or a call back. Yeah. And they prioritized you. Like she was, um, she was just amazed at how well they treated me during that closing. Yeah. That's, that's a big, big deal. And it makes a big difference. Now, walk me through how the onboarding process go. So after you closed, was that rough? Was that hard to, to transfer over that facility to you? Or was it pretty seamless? Did it go easy? Um, and were there any surprises? Yes, the transfer as far as easy and hard. Okay, so this is where there's not a book you guys said, I'm going to write the sequel to AJ's book. That's like, well, now what, how, yeah. do we, yes. how do we do, how do we automate this thing? It was so manual and I knew this going into it, but I didn't know the amount of work it would take to automate it just because, and even, um, behavior, uh, human behavior, the tenants, some of them been there 22 years. They, they do not, not like change. Like change. No, they, they don't. don't. 
yeah. And so again, I'm texting my mentors like, oh, I'm, I'm nervous. What am I going to do? And just like a bandaid, do it all at once. Do it in one letter instead of four. They don't want four letters. They just want one letter. Just throw it on, throw it all at them. Yep. Whoever's going to leave, they're going to leave. And, you know, I only had one or two leave. And those were the ones that they, they were there because of the manager. They, it was like counseling session for them, you know, and like, I can't pay a counselor yeah. for these people. I just need someone to manage the property. So it was a lot of work on the software side, getting everything transferred over, changing, adding the insurance, um, switching. A big thing I did was switch to first of the month billing. Um, and I, I, from what I'm gathering, depending on maybe the size of your facility, I hadn't heard there's a lot of mixed feelings about this. I don't know if you guys prefer first of the month or anniversary billing, um, but first. first of the month. Yeah. And, and uh, what I gathered was, well, it's mostly just the managers who prefer the anniversary because it's, it's more spread out through the month. And for me, that's inefficient. I want, like you say, systems in place that I can, you know, and so that was a little bit challenging. Um, as far as surprises, uh, I mean, there were a lot of little surprises that I just, I just didn't know what happened, but they weren't huge deals. It wasn't like the end of the end of the facility, you know, people, once things got implemented, okay, this is the way it is now and they accepted it and we moved on, you know? I, I, I think you made a really good point. I think there's uh, a problem that people have when they take over the assets that they're trying to accommodate the tenants, that they're trying to make it easy on them. or when, It's like they fear it a lot. And I'm like, it's not that that's bad thinking, right? It's not like I'm like, screw the tenants, not at all. But at the same time, there's no reason to pussyfoot around. We're not the last owner. And I'm not going to try to be something I'm not. And I'm not going to try to sit here and tell you, oh, well, we'll make this adjustment because we'll, we're not going to. So rip the bandaid off. This is who you're dealing with. And if you're not okay with that, you need to go find somewhere else because we're not them and we won't be. So if we drag this out, you're just going to be pissed for longer, right? It's, it's not like you're going to be like, I'm now all of a sudden okay. That never, ever happens. And it's just like, we're just going to increase the amount of complaints we get over the amount of time we get it at a higher rate that we get the complaints. So we try to just walk in, boom, new rates, new management, new yes. processing, new everything. This is how it works. We got to start training you guys now, today, because they always are upset because you're right. Human nature is hard to change. And when you have people that have been in a storage facility, especially because we're dealing with mainly mom and pop people that have never changed rates, People have been in there for years. They talk to the manager every day. And then all of a sudden, it is a totally different situation than they were ever used to or accustomed to. Um, and so I, I think he did a good job ripping that Band-Aid off. Um, I tell people, I'm like, the only thing that you're prolonging is your suffering. So the tenant, you're not, <laughs> so the tenants are not going to be happy. So all you're doing is prolonging your and their suffering. That's it. You don't make them more comfortable. You don't make it easier for them. You just make everybody's life harder. And I'm like, don't do that. Yeah, one of the one of the best pieces of advice I have gotten, and this is works in a lot of different areas. Don't let other people's problems become your problem. 
and it works in so many ways. It's like, you know, you know, you're fighting over a parking space or whatever. Don't let their problem of whatever it is that's going on in their life project onto you. Um, and, but as far as the transition, the hardest thing, because I didn't know a lot of operations side of it from literally just the day-to-day, Hey, when, when can we do an auction? How do we do an auction? You know, they were doing live auctions still. And, um, there was a little bit of a process, maybe four to six months of like, okay, I think, I think I could do this now where like you go in day one now and you know exactly how to train a manager. You probably have your manuals all typed out. They could sit and read it. And I didn't have any of that. And so it was like a learning curve of figuring, figuring it out. And, you know, the first person I hire, it's like, be patient with me. The great thing is this is an evolving role and you get to be part of that, you know, kind of figuring out how this is going to work because it's a first time for both of us. And maybe by the next time it's like, no, this is the way it's going to be because now I'm getting to know what works and what doesn't by actually doing it. Mm-hmm. How, uh, how are you managing them? So I have, uh, I've got an online software that uh, I'm using and I've got a manager, like a boots on the ground. Storage and then a boots on the ground. Storage. Yeah. 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 So so you're doing the, you're, you're doing a partially automated, but then you do have boots on the ground. And I have a call center. So, um, yeah, so boots on the ground, which, uh, that was a little bit of a struggle that employing somebody. And that was right at the time when everybody wants to stay home and still get paid. I couldn't Mm -hmm. find any quality candidates. I just couldn't find what I was looking for. And I, hired, I hired somebody that didn't work out. And when I originally wanted to fill the position, the person I have now is exactly what I wanted, but I just, I let my mind kind of move away from that for a minute. And and when I found him, I had five candidates this time around and I couldn't decide because they each had their own, you know, and, and finally, when I, I went back to this one, I thought that this is the person exactly who I wanted in the beginning, but I let all of the muddiness and complications of, of the transition, as far as me taking over cloud, what I originally knew I, I needed and wanted. Um, and so, yeah, so he's been doing great. And, um, I think there's still a few more, like, I think it's only been a month now that he's, that we finally have like, okay, this is going to work out. So there's still a few, um, things as far as training on the software side, but I mean, the call center's handling, handling so much of it and it's, it's going awesome. And a lot of the tenants, some, you know, the ones that complain, there's the few and they're the loudest, but so many of the tenants were like, we can pay online now. Oh, that's amazing. You know, we don't have to come in with our credit card. It was so convenient for 80% of the people. Yep. It's um, yeah. It, 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 I have done countless studies that show online payments increase your actual uh, revenue. So many people are like, I don't want to give up late fees. I don't want to give up processing fees. I don't want to give up this and that, right? And when you look at it, it's cash payments are so labor intensive. They cash payments are uh, they are three times as more likely to be delinquent. 
And so now you're floating a huge portion of capital in your facility. And they're also over twice as likely to not ever pay, to abandon the unit of which, even though, as you know, we can sell it at auction, we don't make our money up. Like you don't make that up. And most of the time it's a huge loss, not to mention the loss of not having a rented unit. And people don't look at it all inclusive, but the number's staggering at how much money you lose when you do cash payments. And uh, and I know this because we debated this for years. So we debated for so long because we didn't want to give up late fees. So when I say those people, I'm talking about me. I would. I'm like, <laughs> well, and the merchant late fees, fees right? are huge. Those credit card processing fees can really eat into it. So you're like, well, they're taking two and a half percent. Yes. But again, like you said, for me to take the cash, maybe the cash doesn't even make it to the bank because it slips into somebody else's pocket. Happens all the and, time. <laughs> and then I got to take it to the bank. That takes my time, my gas, you know, all these little things worth it. You know, maybe I'll negotiate my merchant fees a little bit and say <laughs> it's it automatically credits their account. My call center can do it. Um, and it's Managers done. stealing. It's always from right. cash payments. That was my because first manager. You can't connect. Mm. You cannot connect payments. All of them. Like within a week. Have, if, if you have a, if you have a facility that does mostly cash payments and you're letting your manager just run that facility or whatnot, I don't care how much you trust them. Yep. I would honestly say out of eight of ten facilities we've ever bought, the manager was stealing. Eight out yeah. of ten. They don't even view it as stealing. They no. view it as like. This is a friend who's paying me for some space that doesn't really matter. Yeah. yeah. What? And so you can't track those things. And to move something online, it's just, it's like, it's a a hard thing for a lot of people to get over because they feel like they're going to lose something if they don't take that cash. And you gotta, like most people have to understand, you know, you actually lose. And so instead of forcing it, one of the things that we do is we say, all right, we're gonna have a processing fee. So if you're paying in cash, you gotta pay a $50 processing fee a month. Yeah. And then all of a sudden they're like, my unit's only worth 80 bucks a month. And you're like, yeah, I have to pay somebody now to take this to the bank. They have to drive there. We have to pay for hours. Like it's a big cost. So, um, you got to pay that processing fee. And that way it's not our choice, right? We're not forcing it. We're not even making it, but we are telling you that if you want an individual to process paper cash, work with the bank, move your cash around and everything, you just have to pay a higher amount. And that always seems to take care of it very, very quickly. Um, We don't. And somebody that's willing to pay 50 bucks more on a $50 facility so you don't have their information, you should also probably be a little worried about. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, that's amazing. So uh, have you seen a change in occupancy or revenue since you took over? Yeah, huge change in revenue. Uh, Surprisingly, it was a very, it's a very... um desired facility. I, I don't think I've had more than two units available the whole time. Um, there's a little bit of turnover right now happening. Um, I just did a report the other day and economic occupancy was 105%. And I'm wow. like, how is that possible? That's I mean, is it just with the insurance or late fees? I'm not sure. Yeah. Um, it's, it's, but, the, it's the ancillary stuff that pushes it. Yeah, out. the extra. But what, what it tells me is, okay, not that I want to have a ton of empty units, but I need to raise my prices again, you know, and it's hard when they haven't had a race, a rate increase in 
six years. And yeah. so anything that comes available definitely gets up to that street rate, but you kind of slowly have to increase the, um, well, the current tenants. We did it just down the road from you. So you're apparently in the same area. <laughs> yeah. We do it slowly. So you're good. Go for it. Yeah, I know. <laughs> I know. I thought, okay, maybe I think in a month here, I'll, I'll do another. But yeah, we, we and we didn't have anybody leave. And it had been 10 years since anybody had gotten a rate increase. It was outrageously mom and pop. Um, they did cash payments. They yep. did everything. And you're once again, 10 years without a rate increase. And we day one, it was everyone, you are all getting a very large rate increase. Um, yeah. And uh, we didn't see a hit in occupancy in that market. So um, yeah, it can be rough because you know what it's, it is people are going to start getting really mad. And it's always crazy to me. It's like, you didn't have to pay an increase for seven years when everybody else in the United States had yeah. everything has doubled in prices or more three, four times what the price was in seven years. You should be saying thank you. Thank you for not giving me a rate increase for seven years, right? Yeah. And instead, they're ticked. And we, and it's so funny, I love telling people this story. We, we bought a facility, which we increased the rates on average 67%. Some of them were as high as 180% day one taking it over 10 years, never got a rate increase, anything else like that. And people are mad about change just to be mad. So we had a tenant that was like, I'm out of here, I'm leaving, you know, I don't care. And we waited to change the signage. He went down the road and rented from my facility, <laughs> right? Same, same, same owner. And he paid a higher amount. And nine months later, uh, or eight months later, he received another rate increase um, at a higher amount and he stayed. Wow. He didn't care about the price. He just cared that it changed. Yeah. And you're like, and two, I don't, he, he had a, Pay a moving company he paid probably i don't know four years worth of that rate increase just simply by moving taking a higher payment and everything else um and so you know it just shows they do what they're trained to do and they do what they're used to and they really actually don't care that much um yeah. and that's shocking but it's true so now so your revenue's up what was your economic uh, uh, rev, uh economic occupancy when you bought it you said it's over 100 percent now yeah i mean it was still fairly good i i wish i had the numbers um but i Were mean you I able was, to raise it yeah yeah definitely especially with the credit cards and i still have a few people pay with cash and you know there are a few people who don't who don't uh, want to be traced or whatnot but yes. okay that's that's your, yep. that's your thing. thing um but yeah, I was able to raise that. I, I brought in not just raising the rents, but in adding the tenant protection plan. Yeah. Um, I only had maybe five tenants opt out of that with providing out of 160, um, which I was shocked yeah. because when I did the numbers, it was like, oh, you'll probably keep 60% of those. But no, so far, um, that's not the case. Um, there's a few other things I'll be doing. I mean, I've rented, uh, getting the apartment rented rather than having the manager live on site. Yes. Um, it sounds like a lot of facilities are going away from that model. And, and yes. for me, I like that as well. It made me nervous. Like, well, if they, if they don't, if they are stealing from you, whatnot, they lose their house and their job. You know, that's. Um, well, and two, like yeah. a lot of people don't forget you fire them. Well, for most of the states, you just can't kick somebody out. 
Yep. Uh, I don't know where you can do that in the United States. So all of a sudden you fire them and they're your tenant that's not paying. And then you have to evict them to get them out. Yeah. It's a bad situation. All the while they know all your tenants and who knows what havoc they're going to wreak on that property. Um, That was a concern when we closed. I, um, I wanted them to give notice to the manager. I wanted her out the date by the day of closing. Because yeah. how am I going to guarantee that I'm not the one um, yeah. saying you got to get out of here, you know, having to evict somebody and they wouldn't do it. And I, I, it made me really nervous, but because I think they didn't want, they trusted her, but they didn't want, like you said, word to start getting out. Hey, this place is for sale. Who knows what, um, Anyway, so luckily they were generous enough. They kind of incentivized the manager because I said, well, I need some type of guarantee that she's going to be getting, that she's going to be out of there. And so they gave her for the 30 days before closing, like a bonus to kind of just run things normal, keep, keep it going. And then the day of closing, they said, now, if you're out in 30 days, we're going to give you this amount of money because originally I was going to withhold well, if you're not willing to give her the notice now, then I'm going to withhold, let's say $20,000 from the purchase until she's out. Then you get, if she's not out in 30 days, you don't get that money. Um, which again, they also wouldn't do, but they said, we will give her a bonus incentive to be out in 30 days. And it happened. Luckily for me, I, you know, I think it could have been real messy, um, but it, it worked out that way. So I think that's important is, is, something I didn't even think about until, well, wait a minute, how am I going to, I'm not keeping the manager around. Um, how am I going to get him out? Man, what a huge amount of value in, in just that thing. And, and what a great way to, to handle something like that. Yeah. That's phenomenal. Yeah. Now, um, where are you going from here? You're trying to buy another facility. Uh, what's your plan? Yeah, so actually I, so this, my first one, it's like my baby, right? How could I give that up? This is where I'm learning. Um, all my street cred, right? Like I don't want to, but again, the goal is to, um, use the momentum of the value add and Hey, I want a bigger facility. So whether I get another one on top of this, or if I have to sell that one, cause I can't come up with the money for a bigger one, I want to do the same amount of work or less for more dollar amount, right? Economies of scale. If I can get 70,000 square feet, it's virtually the same amount of work as 30,000 square feet, um, if not less, because now I have a full-time manager and I don't kind of have to oversee this part-time manager that I think in a couple of weeks, he'll be just fine. But anyway, um, so that's where I'm going. Um, Originally, when I'm sending out all my letters and um, getting nothing back, I, I go to the the meeting at the Colorado Storage Association, and all I hear the brokers say is, "Sellers, this is your time. You can sell for millions and millions of dollars." And I'm like, "Seriously, as a buyer, that's the last thing I want to hear." And I left that conference with the mindset of, "Well, I guess I'm going to build something because no one's ever going to sell, you know." Yeah. And and so I started. I went and looked at all of the construction. I, I actually had been looking at properties and, you know, uh, and then I finally got the call from the seller and I thought, okay, cause I really wanted, uh, existing. I wanted that cash flow day one and, but Hey, if snow's going to sell to me, I'll build it myself. So I would love, well, I wouldn't love to build, but that could be an avenue if, 
no one wants to sell because these things do so great. What's your option? You know, With times are changing. We're moving into a buyer's market. Yeah. And I, I've seen that the last few months. I'm like, okay, now, now I can, is it early? Is it a good we're time? Early. Do you wait another month or two? Like it, we're still early, but we're seeing it change. So um, it's, you know, we're, we're shifting. And, and one of the things that once again, like we're getting deals that to be totally honest, this deal that we just got, um, which is this portfolio deal, we could not, have, we would have never gotten it a year ago. Okay. Um, the sellers are changing their concerns. They're concerned okay. about closing. They're concerned about people jerking them around. They're concerned because it's becoming a buyer's market. And so now buyers are getting locked in and then they're changing terms and they're working on other things because deals are falling out of contract. Banks aren't playing balls. And that because that's not working, the sellers are coming back saying, I have an interest rate that's higher than we expected. So you got to come off on yeah, price and sellers are getting ticked. So it's not one of those things that's like the whole entire market once moves. That's not how it works. What we do is we see it first hits tranches, sellers that have the lesser desirable, lesser locations are up there always hit first, fourth tier, third tier markets, smaller facilities, and then it moves up. Um, in self-storage, it'll probably never truly hit. Like I, I believe that sellers that own facilities and first-tier markets that are large, nice facilities, they never almost ever get hit, right? Like people will always pay for them and, and buy them. But those are usually unique properties. So even in big second-tier markets, um, it's starting to change. Now, uh it, it don't expect it when I we say this, I always have to be careful. That doesn't mean deals are just going to start flowing in. That's not what we're talking about. We mean when you're working with buyers or sellers, their their perception is changing. Who they want to work with, what they're looking for, um, that's changing. And price isn't nearly as big of a factor. Um, and they're not expecting it to be crazy anymore. So, Well, do you foresee um, a lot of sellers that when the prices were hot and high and easy to sell, Maybe now they're not going to sell. Are, are there going to be less sellers because of that? Yeah, there will be. Yeah, absolutely. Like we, the amount of deals that were that were done in the last three years is mind boggling. Yeah. The reason is, is they could get such high prices for it. So we, I, I expect we will see the amount of deals going to market um, shrink down, but we're going to see the amount of buyers shrink down. Because buyers that were, let's say, in real estate, but they weren't really into storage or they were going to get into storage and interest rates have gone up, banks now are going to be a lot more sensitive to who they're lending money to. And so it's, it has a ripple effect that although there's not as many sellers, there's definitely not as many buyers. Um, so I think that we're going to see it, it, it. The market's not going away. Storage prices aren't going back to what they were prior. I'm not saying any of those things but I am saying it's going to soften. And finally, buyers are going to just at least be able to feel like I'm in the game. Whereas the last two years, it's just been like, doesn't matter what I throw out, somebody's going to come out astronomically higher. And it's just like the stupider the price, the, that's the who wins, right? That stuff we believe is, it's gone. We're, you know, three caps on pro formas, things like that, that we've been seeing for the last two years, that stuff's gone. It's not. That we we just I'm, we're not seeing it. Those ones that were under contract have fallen out of contract. Um, so 
we don't need it to be what it was prior to 2016. We don't need it to be eight caps, right? We just yeah. need it to be not insane. And as long as it's not crazy, it's good for buyers. Yeah, I also think the industrial space intrigues me. I've looked at quite a few industrial <laughs> spaces because I thought, well, you know, it's very similar, just less tenants. And so yeah. same amount of square footage, you know, how, um, so that is also somewhere I'd like to go as well. 100%. I love it too. It is very much the relatives, right? So it's a storage. And so once you got it down, you, you, you got it easier. But I think you're going to be in a good spot because you now have experience. The market's changing. And so being a buyer, you'll be able to grow. And I think it's kind of an opportunity a lot of us have been waiting for for a while. So that's that's awesome. Um, well, where can people go to find out more about you? We've stolen a lot of your time. We're very appreciative of your generosity with your information and uh, um, getting this deal down. Where can people go to learn more about you, um, follow you, keep in touch? Uh, so you can email me. My email is tiffboss13 uh, at gmail.com or my uh, Instagram, as meager as it is, it's um, the storage boss with just the period storage period boss. Um, so you could find me there. And we will, of course, everybody post uh, this in the show notes. So you all have it. Um, with that, I, thank you again for so much of your time today. Uh, this has been a great conversation. Um, congratulations on your deal. What an awesome deal. Uh, so, so excited to watch you on your journey because we know you're not going to end. So we'll <laughs> talk to you more later. Appreciate All right. It. Thank you guys. Thanks for your time. Thanks. Thanks so much, Tiffany.